Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So as I'm sitting down to do the podcast, we have the remnants of the hurricane whistling in the background, blowing the trees. So if people hear that, that's what it is. But I do want to take this moment to say I hope everybody down south in Florida and South Carolina and all the places affected by the current hurricane are doing okay. It sounds absolutely horrific what happened down there and how much devastation and destruction the hurricane caused. So I do hope everybody is doing okay. Can't even imagine. I mean, we get hurricanes up here, but nothing compared to what just hit down there. At least not so far. We'll see. They've been getting worse and worse. So again, uh, thoughts and prayers to everybody. Hope everybody's doing okay and everybody's safe. So first off, we're going to start this one by mentioning that in the last podcast, I mentioned my buddy Eric Topping does a lot of beautiful enclosures. I mean, they're really stunning. And like a doofus, I didn't put his information so people can actually check it out. And I had a lot of people ask. And Eric actually went on the site and commented and left his information. So Eric Topping can be found at Punk Rock Tarantulas. That's his Instagram handle. He also shared a link to a YouTube playlist he put together that shows how to do a lot of this stuff. So for folks that want to take a peek at what Eric's doing and see where he's getting his inspiration from, you'll find that in the site. I'll try to put links in this podcast as well. A huge thank you to everybody that's been using the new website, definitely making it worth it. A lot of people subscribing, which is awesome because I am trying to think of something fun we can do with folks that have subscribed to kind of get them involved in one of these podcasts coming up. And a, a note, we had some trouble again with the comp. This is growing pains. This is why I should have started this a while ago because I could have worked all these little kinks out. But uh, this time around, I could see comments, I could approve comments, but once I approved them, there was no way for me to reply. So if anybody wondered why it took me so long to reply, it wasn't because I've been trying to stay on these because they're, they're, a lot of them are well-thought-out comments that it takes me a little while to respond to, so I didn't want to get behind, but there was a little problem there, so we got that fixed, and then somebody just commented, and I can't find a way to respond to it. So we're still working through the kinks, but so far, so good. A lot of traffic coming through, which is great, because it's making it totally worth it, and I should have launched it sooner, because it's been really nice hearing from people that I've never heard from before. With the YouTube stuff, you have your regulars that you talk to all the time that always take the time to comment, and you kind of go back and forth. And with the podcast, I lack that. So it's great hearing from some people that I haven't heard from. Now, there are a couple comments I want to read through because they kind of either reinforce what I said last week or in one case, add a new twist or a new idea as far as why we love to keep these animals. So remember, if you leave a comment on the site and you would rather I not read it on the podcast because I will be kind of plucking some of the comments to respond to to kind of connect to last week's podcast. This will be a new thing we'll be doing moving ahead now that we have the comment section. But if you'd rather I not use it, just put something in there and I will leave it alone or just use a different name. Some people have told me I left a comment, but I didn't use my real name, whichever, because I do want to have more interaction between episodes and between folks who are actually listening to them. So we have a couple I want to read today. First one comes from Leah. Hi, Tom. It's a great episode to listen to. Completely agree with you with all the points you mentioned about good and the bad. I wanted to add another positive to the list that's similar to what you mentioned as well. I live with my husband, who is very allergic to all things fluffy, i.e. cats, dogs, rabbits, etc. As an animal lover, you can imagine it's hard living without a dog or cat when I've never been without one before meeting him. But being an animal lover means it's not all about cats and dogs. I also love reptiles and inverts, which meant keeping my gecko, snake, and tarantulas is perfect. My husband has no reaction at all to them, and it means I can still have animals to love and care for. He doesn't interact with the tarantulas, so getting haired is never a risk anyway for him. Without these animals, I don't know how I would have coped, especially, as you mentioned as well, I struggle sometimes with my mental health and caring for my animals brings a lot of joy to my life. I recently went away for a week, again, like you touched on about being low maintenance, my teas were not a worry. Finding family to take in my snake and gecko proved difficult enough, but they were cared for perfectly while we were not at home. As for the tarantulas, trying to ask someone, hey, will you look after my 38-legged giant creepy things for a week, definitely would not have had a positive response. But that's another beauty about these animals. About two days before going away, I fed and watered everyone, made sure they were all happy, and just left them. That sounds crazy to just leave your animals unattended for a week, but when I got back home and checked on them, they were all exactly how I left them, and even a couple successful molts too. They might have even enjoyed some peace without me shining a flashlight and staring at them a hundred times a day. So, Leah, awesome point as far as a couple awesome points here, one that's going to lead into the podcast topic for today. 
they are super easy to care for. I know folks that have gone away for two, three weeks and had no issues whatsoever. All you have to do is make sure your moist ones are moist, have a nice full water dish. I would feed them all ahead of time and they're perfectly fine. And I love the fact that you said that uh, they might have enjoyed some peace without you shining a flashlight and staring at them 100 times a day because that, again, is going to lead into what we're talking about today. And then the mental health piece. A lot of folks chimed in with the mental health piece. I think a lot of us, that's our happy place. That's a place that helps us cope when things aren't going well. And I do think that it's it can't be understated how important that aspect of the hobby is to a lot of people. And as far as, it's funny you mentioned the fact that you couldn't have a dog or a cat or whatever. Our first apartment, I've had animals my whole life. I, you know, we grew up on a farm. We'd go sheep, a couple cows, all kinds of stuff, chickens, rabbits, all kinds of stuff. And when my wife and I first out, we had an apartment where we couldn't really have any furry pets. And it was weird for me to not have furry pets. So that's kind of what got me into the reptiles. Again, I'd always been fascinated with snakes and spiders. So that part, I was finally getting, you know, to explore that a bit. But a lot of it was due to the fact because I wasn't allowed to have the other animals. And then when we moved to a place where we could have animals, we were able to have dogs, but I couldn't have goats or sheep. I, I was so used to caring for multiple animals that tarantulas, well, first it was snakes, and then tarantulas helped fill that itch. So so I can definitely appreciate that part of it. And then, great point, because you're not the first person to come to me and say they're with a loved one that can't, unfortunately, do the furry animals. They're super allergic to them. And so the tarantulas give them an opportunity to keep something and care for something, because for those of us that enjoy doing that and get a lot out of it, that's an important thing to have. So that is a great point, one that I'll probably have to add into the article. So I appreciate that. And I will definitely mention you when I add it in there. The next one comes from Rosalinda. Rosalinda, appreciate you popping over the website. I know you're usually on Facebook and it's probably easier to do it over there. But Rosalinda was talking about the mental health aspect of keeping them, which again, someday I'm going to put together something with it. It'll probably be with some different testimonials from folks because I think, again, it's one of the more powerful aspects of the hobby that gets overlooked. And it's not to say that everybody, obviously, that gets in the hobby does it because of the mental health aspect, but I do think for a lot of people, it's an important integral part of the hobby and why they enjoy it so much and why it is so important to them. So Rosalinda writes, hey, Tom, big fan of the podcast, just giving feedback on the latest. Feel free to use this if you want. We're going to use it. Thank you so much. I have 59 tarantulas and a tailless whip scorpion. I found myself in my 30s struggling with long-term deep depression and anxiety. I was holding a job and being a solo parent, but I was drowning. I wasn't exactly taking care of myself. I wasn't cleaning my house. I wasn't able to have any hobbies, and I was miserable. I was losing the battle, and I thought that I wouldn't survive. In 2020, I made a lot of changes in my life to try to fix it. As I started to recover, I happened to find out about the tarantula hobby and dove in. It was the first time in over a decade I was able to enjoy an activity again and feel excitement about learning a new thing. I started taking care of my space and my home and started becoming a place that I enjoyed being in. It used to look like it was ready for an episode of Hoarders, not fit for anyone to live in. For years, I wouldn't let anyone in my house at all. Now it looks like a normal home, except unlike a normal home, I have a beautiful display of gorgeous animals. People come over now just to see them. They were an aid in healing my mental health as well as a reward for healing it. And as for my favorite plus about them, it's that their ease of care makes them the only animals I want to keep. With other pets, I always felt like I was behind in their care. The rats always need new bedding, the litter box always feels like it needed to be cleaned, and the fish tank was always dirty. Pets felt like chores, and I was always feeling behind on them. But even with a good number of tarantulas and no help to care for them, when I look at my gorgeous display of pets, I don't see a chore I need to do. I see a bunch of pretty happy animals doing their things. So thank you so much for chiming in with that, Rosalinda. I think it's incredibly powerful, again, to hear how important they are. And it's something that, you know, I used to take for granted for a while. I do this Tom's Big Spider stuff. And if anybody's ever spoken to me in person about it, I downplay the whole thing. It's some geeky thing I did on the side that kind of grew into something a little bit bigger. And I never put a lot, well, for years, I didn't put a lot of importance in it until I started hearing from people on how much Keeping tarantulas changed their lives, especially in the mental health aspect, people with PTSD, folks with severe depression, with anxiety, all sorts of issues that they find the tarantula hobby, and that helps them begin their healing. And then it kind of became clear that some of the stuff I put out there, although I may not put a lot of weight behind it, it means a lot to a lot of different people. So kind of humbling in, in a sense, because I'm constantly making fun of myself for doing this kind of type of thing. But then you hear something like that and you realize there actually is a meaning to it. There's a purpose and it means a lot to a lot of people. So 
Awesome stuff. Thanks so much, everybody, for chiming in. And for this episode, we're going to use this to segue into a problem that's created by the fact that they are so easy to care for. So we had two there that both talked about the ease of care, and I couldn't agree more. People ask me how I take care of this many animals, and it's really easy, honestly. They don't need a lot of attention, and in some cases, more attention or extra attention can be to their detriment. So we talk about them being super easy to care for, but that can be an issue for people who are used to caring for other animals, and I've alluded to this before, and I actually, I think, mentioned this podcast is a possibility, the last episode, but what happens when you care too much, for lack of a better term? You overcare for the tarantulas. That seems to me to be one of the bigger issues we have in the hobby and one that isn't always discussed. Because what happens is somebody goes out, they do all of their research, they are ready to roll. And this can happen to the best of us, this can happen to people that have spent months researching. It's a totally different ballgame when you actually have the spider with you, when you actually have this animal that you've read about, that you've studied on, that you've taken copious notes on, that you've spoken to keepers, you've gone on arachnoboards, you've gone on Facebook groups, you've taken in all the information you can get, you get the spider, you set it up, and then the stress begins. Then the anxiety starts. Did I do this right? Am I doing it right? Is this normal? Is this spider in pain? Is this spider in bad shape? Is this spider eating? Is it not eating? All kinds of stuff can pop up the minute you have that spider. And I think this is where the overcaring starts coming in. It's from people who are so worried, so concerned about the health of their spiders that they may overdo it or in some cases do things that are actually the opposite or create the opposite effect of what they're looking for. And again, this happens quite often. I get a lot of emails that involve these types of scenarios. So what we're going to do today is kind of break down why there's an issue. And then we're going to present some real life scenarios inspired by actual emails and comments I've received that show how this works. What what leads to these situations where you overcare for them. So Let's start by talking about how this happens. You've done your research, as we've said. You're ready to roll. The problem is, and this usually comes up when people are talking about working with old worlds and such, that reading doesn't take the place of experience. And that's true. You have to read. You have to do a bunch of research first. But at some point, you have to dip your toes in, get your feet wet, and kind of live the experience yourself. You've read about it. Now you have to actually live that experience yourself. And I think that goes well beyond just behavior and working with old worlds. It's every aspect of the hobby. There are so many things that I read about that I didn't understand until I actually experienced them. And then there are things you don't read about and then you experience them and have to kind of learn on the fly. What am I seeing here? What is this? Have other people seen this before? And I think that's the part where people struggle is because reading about them and keeping them not necessarily the same thing. You do need to gain that experience. And the only way to gain that experience is to keep them and go through those trials and tribulations that every keeper goes through. So where do we get the overcare? Overcare comes from when somebody sees a situation or a perceived situation with their spider, because sometimes there's really no issue. What they're experiencing is completely normal. They just don't have the experience level to recognize it. In other cases, something may be wrong, but they make the wrong read on it and do stuff that's actually counterproductive to what they are trying to do. And this is where we get into overcare. When we fixate on stuff, we see something, we think it's wrong, we perseverate on it, and then we start doing things. We start acting on it. And sometimes maybe the action's good. Sometimes we do something like, oh, we fixed it. Other times when you get into overcare, it's when the action is not right and can complicate things. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through a couple scenarios to kind of illustrate how this works and how sometimes people don't, I think for lack of a better term, troubleshoot before they get to this point. They panic. And I understand it because it's a living animal. And I think when everybody starts keeping a living animal that they've never kept before, it comes with a certain level of apprehension. It comes with a certain level of anxiety because you're afraid you're going to do the wrong thing by the animal. And that's going to result in the animal having poor health or dying. And that's a big concern a lot of us have when we first get into the hobby. So when something happens and we see it and we're not sure what it is, it kicks into panic mode. And when you're in panic mode, you're not always making the most reasonable or most logical decisions. And that's where some of these errors come from. So the first one here we're going to talk about, I'm going to get this one out of the way because I'm, I've joked about it in my videos. It's kind of a small, trivial one, but every once in a while I'm reminded it's still an issue and it still leads to some uncomfortable spiders. Molts, pulling the molts. This is one that I I don't know how this got out there, but somewhere 
it got out that leaving a molt in with a spider can be hazardous to the spider. I'm not sure. I've joked about this for years on my videos because I will often leave the molts in there for quite a while until I can get a good grab on them. I don't worry about them so much. I've never had a single issue with a molt being left in any amount of time. The only time you'll sometimes see something is if they're left there and you pour water on them. They can sometimes mold up a little bit, but then you just pluck them out. It's not a big deal. But a lot of folks get freaked out when they see the molts. And I've had people email me in a state of panic. Hey, Tom, my G Polker just molted. Unfortunately, its molt is down in the burrow. What should I do? And in those cases, they're reaching out and I can tell them, don't worry about it. Eventually, it'll take that molt and it'll either throw throw it out or it'll just leave it there. It's not going to do any harm. But in other instances, I will have people email me and tell me stories like, hey, Tom, so I was trying to dig out my tarantula's molt and I kind of messed up its whole burrow. And now it's sitting on the side of the enclosure. It's all scrunched up. It's stressed out. I don't know what to do. And that's one of those situations where you're kind of over caring for it. You have it in your mind that for some reason, that molt that was part of the spider, <laughs> let's keep that in mind, was part of the spider until quite recently, is going to do it harm. So you're trying to get that out of there. With, you're doing anything possible to make sure that molt is removed. You end up digging into its burrow, and this happens more than you would think. And if you did it before, I'm not making fun. Believe me, I'm just trying to clarify that this is one of these situations where we kind of overthink things. There's nothing wrong with leaving the molt there. Some animals, like the OBT, are infamous for working the molts into to the actual dens. They web them up. Somebody used my exact analogy for this. I said it used to remind me of the movie Jeepers Creepers with this cathedral of pain where all the bodies were kind of in the cathedral and the walls. That's kind of what they do with their molts. Some will just take their molts and they will work them into their actual burrow. They web them up. It becomes part of the decor, so to speak. So we have to stop freaking out about the molts. It's not an issue. Leave them in there. Pull them out when it's convenient. Do not pluck them out with a spider that's obviously just molted and sitting on top of it. That puts the spider at risk. That's another thing. I've had people be like, I plucked it out of there as soon as I could. Leave it alone because a lot of times they will scrunch it all up, suck that extra moisture out of it. Granted, it makes it difficult when you're trying to sex them because a lot of times they end up chewing up that part of it. But let's not freak out about the molts. It's one of the ones that pops up quite a bit. And there's zero cause for stress in those situations. But it's a good example of folks overthinking it and doing something that can make things more difficult or stressful for the spider. If you tear down a spider's den because you're trying to get the molt out, you are making that spider's life miserable for no reason whatsoever because now it has to either redig the den or in some cases you're going to get a situation where it just sits in the corner and scrunches all up in a stress pose because you've taken away its home. So that's one of the more elementary examples of it, but it's a good example nonetheless. Next one, I'm going to read the scenario and then we'll break down where the issue is. Hi, Tom. I recently bought an H. lividus juvenile from a pet store and I set it up according to my research. I gave it about three inches of moist substrate, a water dish, and a starter burrow in the corner. After a week, it hadn't eaten, and I worried that it might be too dry, so I added more water. Unfortunately, the substrate became swampy, and I started growing mold, so I rehoused it again into something smaller. Now it's just sitting in a corner looking miserable. What did I do? So there are a couple things going on here that need to be considered, and this is how we kind of troubleshoot. The first thing I would look at here is you bought the H. lividus, you put it into a container with three inches of moist substrate, sounds good, water dish, sounds good, starter burrow. One of the biggest issues I see with people that are starting to keep fossorial species for the first time is they give it a little hole in a corner, but they don't give it any place to hide under while they start constructing their burrow. And this is a very common one where I ask for pictures. I see a picture of basically a tub of dirt, a hole in a corner, sometimes a hole in two corners, and a spider that's webbed itself up in another corner or an area behind the water dish because it doesn't feel comfortable yet yet in its surroundings. I always, always tell people that when you're housing fossorial species, no matter what you read, there's stuff out there that says they will construct their own burrows. That's true. They will construct their own burrows. And sometimes, even if you don't give them a place to hide, they will eventually pick a corner. They'll start digging. It just takes them longer. So I always encourage folks when rehousing the fossorial species to be sure that you give them some type of cork bark high or something to hide beneath as they burrow. So what I usually like to do is I make a little starter burrow with my finger or a brush and I put a piece of cork bark over it and I would say eight out of 10 times, that's where the spider ends up and starts digging its burrow. Now, unfortunately, what happens in the situations where somebody does not provide that type of cover is it takes the spider longer to settle down. And then you have the scenario that we have here where the person is freaking out because they bought the spider. It should be digging. Everything they read about it said that it was fossorial. It was going to immediately construct its own burrow, but it's been two weeks and it hasn't started to burrow yet. 
That's normal behavior for a spider, even a fossorial species that wasn't provided hide. It's going to take longer to settle in. Sometimes what they will do is they'll start digging in a corner that you've already put the hole in. They'll start webbing around it. They'll do a little webbing, and then they start digging for there. Other times they go to a spot that you weren't even expecting. But bottom line is you want to give them shelter. If you don't, you're going to have that situation. Now, where we start over-caring for them is when we go in and go, uh-oh, it's not burrowing. I must have something wrong with my setup. Even though you've probably done your homework, you recognize that the substrate isn't overly moist. They have the water dish. Everything looks right, but you start freaking out and you start fixing it. And you're like, what do I do? How do I fix it? So unfortunately, one thing I see a lot of times with the moisture dependent species is the people worry that it's too dry. Oh no, the spider's not digging because it's too dry, which is probably the furthest thing from the truth. If you do have moist substrate, especially if your lower levels are moist and the top levels are dry, that's a wonderful way to get those moisture dependent fossorial species to burrow because they will burrow down to the moist substrate beneath that's one of my favorite tricks for getting them to dig right off the bat i keep the bottom levels moist i put moist substrate in i put a layer maybe an inch or so of drier substrate on top i put a starter burrow in a couple corners i put cork bark over it and usually what happens is they go in they sense that moist substrate beneath and they dig to it and within a week they're usually completely set up but what ends up happening is you pour in a bunch of extra water now it's too moist almost swampy and there's no real motivation for the spider to dig to that more moist substrate because everything's moist it's super moist up top and that's when you're going to start getting mold and when you're going to create an environment if you don't have really good cross ventilation, really good ventilation, where that enclosure is going to become stuffy and possibly a death trap for the spider. So I see this one a lot where folks will contact me and it's like they've done in their minds everything, but all they've done is kind of created a, a worse situation. And then what ends up happening inevitably is they start getting mold or they recognize that they have poured too much water in and there's no turning back. It's not drying out quickly enough. And next thing you know it, after having the spider for maybe only a few weeks or a month, we're doing another rehousing. Every time you rehouse the spider, and we've talked about this, they get over the stress of it rather quickly, most of them, but that is still a stressful situation. And if you completely alter your spider's environment, you are basically resetting the clock in terms of that spider settling in and settling down. And that can be more of an issue because now what ends up happening is you've rehoused and you put it into something new. Well, in your mind, you've already had the spider for a month. It should be settled in. In the spider's mind, it just went through a situation where it didn't have an adequate hide. Then it had really swampy conditions and it was really stressed out. You're probably dropping prey items and freaking out because the spider's now not eating because it's stressed out. And now you've just completely changed its whole environment. So now it has to settle down again. So now we get even more fear, more anxiety from the keeper because they are perpetuating the issue by doing all this stuff to it, by changing its environment, by adding too much moisture, by rehousing. The rehousing one happens quite a bit. I get a lot of emails from people who set something up and then decide that when the spider doesn't settle down right away, it isn't webbing. If they have a webbing species, it isn't burrowing. If they have a burrowing species, if it's a boreal, it's hunkering down by the bottom. They freak out. They go, my enclosure must be bad. I need to redo it. And it's good that people think that way. It's good that people, again, are troubleshooting to the point where they go, wait a minute, maybe I didn't provide the spider with the correct environment. That's, that's good. But unfortunately, where it goes bad is when they've never given the spider enough time to settle in, in the first place, and then they change everything around. So with that in mind, we're going to segue into our next scenario where people tend to do something that is not the correct thing, kind of overcaring for their spider, the rehousing too much. So as an example, how this can go wrong, we have this scenario here. Dear Tom, I put my Brachypelma smithy in what I thought to be a good enclosure. After about two weeks, it wasn't eating and it seemed stressed. I realized that the enclosure was probably a bit large, so I rehoused it into a smaller one. Unfortunately, I got mold in this enclosure, so I did an emergency rehousing. It still won't eat, and now it's scrunched up in the corner. I get a lot of these where people have already moved the spider two or three times before they contact me. And this can be, again, very, very stressful for the spider. It does not allow them to settle in. A lot of times you have situations like this one here where they get mold and it's a species that shouldn't have moisture to begin with. So it means somewhere along the line, the person started freaking out that it was too dry and started adding moisture. This can be deadly to species that do not like moisture. And I see this a lot back to the moisture one we were talking about earlier where 
They have a species that's more of an arid species. You know, we're talking juvenile, young adult, adult, and they start worrying that it's too dry for it. They have the water dish, but they think maybe it needs some moisture. They pour some water in. Next thing you know, it they have a they have moist substrate throughout the enclosure and a spider that's climbing the side of the walls. So then it leads to another rehousing. This is one of those spots where we're not thinking the right way. When you when you put a spider into a new enclosure, the settling in period, the acclimation period, can be anywhere from a couple days to several weeks. So I've had ones that took well over. A month to finally start doing what they needed to do. And that's okay. If we mess with them too much during that period, we kind of again restart the clock. Now, as an alternative to the let's immediately rehouse the spider thing, one thing I have encouraged people to do when I've asked for pictures and realized that something might not be right is to make some changes to the existing enclosure. So for example, if you put a spider in and it's a fossorial species like we talked about before and you recognize it's scrunched up in the corner, it's not digging anywhere and you realize you didn't give it a cork bark hide or someplace to hide beneath, Adding a hide at that point is totally okay. I've done this before with mine where I've seen that the spider isn't really settling in well and sometimes I add a second one in. That's totally okay. It's one of the least disruptive things you can do. Sure, you're adding a a new obstacle in there, but what's going to happen is hopefully that spider's going to go exploring. When those lights go out, it's going to find that little tunnel underneath and go, hey, this is a lot better than sitting right out in the open, and it's going to use it. The other thing I've seen as far as things to do when you have these situations where you're worried about your spider not settling in before you rehouse it, before you start pouring a bunch of water in it, is look to see if there's enough cover. I've seen this with arboreals, especially people will create an arboreal setup, they will use, you know, a lot of times it's the 8 by 8 by 12 tanks, and it's the ones where it's glass all around. So there's no place for that spider to hide because there's light coming in from all directions. They lean a little cork bark tube against the side. And I've been guilty of this too, so please don't think I'm judging. I've been here. You lean a piece of cork bark against the side. Maybe it's a flat, maybe it's a tube. You put a water dish in. There's one little plant sticking out of it, and you go, there you go, perfect house. And what ends up happening is the spider gets in there. There's no cover for it. It goes behind the cork bark. It feels exposed. Sometimes they don't want to go in the cork bark. We want them to go in there. We think they'll feel happy, but they don't. So you have a spider that's scrunched up on the ground. I've seen this happen with avicularia, carabina species, where they're not up high. Or you get the other situation, which is can be equally confounding, where the carabina or avicularia takes residence up in the top where the enclosure opens. They start webbing up around there because they don't feel comfortable. So they find that corner. They start webbing up, which is not where we want them because then when we open the enclosure, we rip the web up, we disrupt them. So this can be very frustrating too. And a quick fix to this sometimes is to drop in a plant. A lot of times I will have these plastic plants that I will find either on Petco or on Amazon that I keep in stock for situations. Well, usually I use them in an enclosure I'm setting up because I've kind of learned this lesson over the years. But for example, I just had a situation where in one of the enclosures I put a plant in, it was a golden pothos and the pothos died. And now I have a situation where the spider's feeling a little more exposed. So what I'm going to do is replace it with probably not another pothos because I'm not going to go digging around in there with the spider in there. And I don't want to disrupt the spider anymore than I already will, but I'm going to put a big plant plastic plant in there to just give it something to hide behind because it was enjoying being behind. A lot of times I find it in the corner behind that plant. So one trick you can do, alter the enclosures. You can definitely make changes. Now do it safely. If you're doing it with an old world species, don't go. If you have your OBT scrunched up in the corner and you decide you want to add some plants to give it some cover and some web anchors or you want to give it a little hide in the corner, some cork bark to hide beneath, then make sure you protect yourself by cordoning it off with some cardboard or cupping it and then working. Don't get yourself into trouble. I'm not telling people to just reach in there. Make sure you secure the spider first. Usually cupping it is fine. Make sure it's cupped and then go do what you need to do. But adding a water dish adding some foliage. This is something I was guilty of back in the day. I would make these really barren enclosures. I'd put a couple little plant leaves in there or something kind of for decoration, but didn't appreciate, didn't understand how much those plants can mean to the spider that's trying to settle in because they offer some cover. They offer some security. So I've been a lot more careful making sure I've always got plants on hand and putting them in there now, whether it be the pothos. I love using golden pothos and they look great and they grow out and give them coverage or even plastic plants, whatever it may be. But adding those, adding a cork bark hide to a situation where it doesn't have it should be the first steps you take before you start pouring a bunch of extra water in there or rehousing. Those always try those first. And as much as it drives us nuts and stresses us out to have to wait, 
Give it some time to see after you make these changes if the spider settles in. Because again, even though we're trying to avoid disrupting the spider too much, changing its environment is a disruption to the spider. It's going to take a little while to get used to it. But you'll find that a lot of them will cotton to it very quickly, go behind it, start webbing or hiding. That's what we're looking for. But even if they don't, you have to give them time. I think that's the big issue with tarantulas is that a lot of it involves us just watching and not touching them. And that's the difficult part yes we just talked about early in the podcast for some people that's the best part of it you feed them you water them you pull out a bullet you don't have to touch them for another month in some instances they're perfectly fine and that's tough for us to take and tough for us to swallow especially if there's a situation where we've read the spider's body language its behavior and we think that something's wrong but i do think a lot of folks a lot of these things we're talking about the overcare happens early on with people they're just keeping spiders and happens early on when they get the spiders meaning they've just acquired them they don't allow them to settle in there's maybe little mistakes in the housing and that's what leads to these types of situations now another symptom of something being wrong in the tarantula or could be a symptom of something being wrong with the tarantula that pops up quite a bit usually it's not a sign of anything wrong but the spider not eating. We talked about how in these situations here, the spider is cowered in the corner. It's not usually not eating. That's the big thing. If your spider's cowered in the corner and it's eating, stop worrying. It's going to settle down. As long as it's eating, you're fine. I can see when people start freaking out where it's been a few weeks, they pick the spider up. The first thing you want to do is see that spider eat and know that it's taken to its new environment, that it's going to be healthy and it's not eating. That freaks people out. But sometimes the situation is just because the spider hasn't settled in yet. Other times we forget the fact that if you, especially if you're buying from a pet store or an older specimen, the spider may come to you in pre-mold. That's another thing. And I'm always asking people when they say, I've had the spider for three weeks, it hasn't eaten. What does it look like? Is it acting lethargic? Is its booty nice and plump? If it's if its butt is plump, don't worry about it. It'll eat when it needs to eat or it might be in pre-mold. That's something we tend to miss quite a bit that leads to us making a lot of bad moves. So spider, they put it in a new enclosure. It's not settling in or it seems to settle in, but it's not eating. And then they freak out because they think the enclosure is wrong when the spider, in fact, is just in pre-mold. Or in more serious cases, if you've ever seen a tarantula, and I'm assuming anybody listening probably has, that's in heavy pre-mold, they can be very lethargic, they can act weird, they can sit funny, and that tends to send off red flags to people that haven't seen these behaviors before, and they start doing things that are going to make life a lot more miserable for that spider. So for example, I received an email not that long ago from somebody who had picked up an adult female G. Porteri from a friend, and it sounded like the friend really wasn't keeping her all that well anyway, but this person took it seriously, did a lot of homework on it. Well, the spider was acting lethargic. It wasn't eating. They freaked out. They thought there was something wrong with the spider, that it was sick, so they took the G. Porteri out and put it into an ICU. And fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the spider soon molted in the ICU, which is, if you know the G. porteri, they are a species that abhors moisture. This means you took the spider out while it was in heavy pre-molt. You put it in an ICU, which is basically a very humid container for spiders that we've discussed. Sometimes ICU seems like a good idea when maybe they're dehydrated. For most other things, I'm not sure how it's actually supposed to work. In this case, it's counterproductive because you've given it a situation that could be bad for its health when in fact all it needed was to be left alone so it could molt in peace. And this isn't the first time I've heard of this happening. I get a lot of comments and emails about folks that see a tarantula. It's usually, and it's usually their first pre-molt period. And I get it because I've been there where you're watching the spider and it's like, I can't tell if it's fat enough. I can't tell if there's something wrong. It's not eating because of the way I'm keeping it. It's acting really slow. Oh my gosh, is it dying? Sometimes they're a little scrunched up. And you freak out and start trying to change its environment. You pull it out. You pour more water in. You try feeding it again. All things that sound really good on paper, but all things that are going to stress out a spider that just needs to be left alone. And the ICU thing sadly happens quite a bit. Folks think there's something wrong with it. The only thing they know to do is stick it in an ICU and put it on a shelf somewhere. And unfortunately, that's not what the spider needs. And again, I'm not judging because I've been there. I've had situations where, and I've seen it more with the arboreal species. Sometimes the arboreals can be so lethargic when they're in pre-molt that they look like they're dying. And sometimes they'll end up, I've seen situations where they fall out of the web and they're, they seemingly can't get back up to the web. I had a situation once a while back where I had a Salmopia species and I basically came in, found the Salmopia species. It was out of its web behind, it usually had webbed up behind its little cork bark hide and that's where it hid and it would throw out its molt when it was done. Well, I found it sitting out 
on the actual surface, kind of tucked in a corner, not looking good at all. I was worried things had gotten too dry. So I took it out and put it into another enclosure with just some moist paper towel, just in case. Came back the next day. Guess what? It had molted. I felt like the biggest idiot on the planet. So it could happen to all of us because as we've talked about before, spiders aren't the most expressive animals in the world. And we have very limited signs that something's wrong. And unfortunately, some of the signs that we see that make it look like something's wrong are signs that what it's doing is completely natural, which is molting. So I definitely understand how this can happen, but I can't tell you how many times folks will see a spider that is in pre-molt or exhibiting obvious pre-molt behavior, freak out and do something that can put the spider in jeopardy. Earlier, we were talking about the rehousings and rehousing them when they don't need it. This is another spot where you get people that see the spider, they're freaked out, there's something wrong with it, there must be something wrong with the substrate. They move the spider into a new enclosure, and then within a couple days, the spider molts, and they're like, oh, crud, completely missed that one. So it happens. It happens to the best of us, but it's one of those things where we're not able to just leave well enough alone. We're not able to just observe and recognize that, hey, the spider is doing something completely natural, and then we try to intervene, we try to care for the spider. We're not doing this because we're trying to hurt it. We're trying to care for it. But unfortunately, what we're doing is actually putting the spider at risk. So we've covered situations where the spider has left its molt in and we pulled the molt out. Kind of one of the, I had to mention that one because it still seems to be out there that molts can be hazardous. But then we have other ones where somebody starts adding in too much moisture and creates an environment that is not healthy for the spider. The We have the old, I think there's something wrong with the setup. So I'm going to go ahead and completely rehouse the spider, even though the other setup was probably fine or just needed some adjustments. Now let's go on to probably the most popular one that people freak out about. My spider buried itself. We've all fallen for it. I fell for it. I told the story many times about the LP sling I had. I had read that they buried themselves. I wasn't going to freak out. I got the LP sling. I fed it every other day or so. It ate, it ate, it ate, and all of a sudden it disappeared. It completely closed in its burrow, and I was freaking out. And it was there for at least, it seemed to me like a year. I think it had only been like three weeks, and I was so close to digging this thing up. And then I went online again and hopped on a rack of boards. And I remember looking up some stuff about them burrowing and the fact that it's totally natural. I said, no, I'm going to keep my hands off. But a lot of people can't. And a lot of people do dig them up. I did share the story of my Hapalopus species, Columbia large or Hapalopus formosus that I had years ago, little tiny slings that the sling disappeared. I was positive it was dead. I dug the thing up against my better judgment and just had a really irritated sling. We've all done it, but this one still gets people and still leads to situations that, again, make things uncomfortable for the spider. 99% of the time, if a spider has been eating really well, it's been eating, there's no problems eating. This is always the first question I ask when people go, my spider just buried itself, is it in trouble? Was it eating beforehand? Yeah, it was eating great. I was feeding it every day. Okay, your spider is in pre-mole. When they enter pre-mole, there's no need for them to be out and about hunting. If they were in the wild, they would be exposed to birds and other animals that may eat them. So they bury themselves so they can go through the process in peace. Very, very, very normal. And 99% of the time, we'll deal with that 1% in a moment. The tarantula goes into the burrow as long as it has the correct, you know, if it's a situation where everything's completely dry and it's a spider that needs some moisture, you want to make sure you moisten down the substrate a little bit. But as long as the environment's correct, it will go down there depending on the size of the spider slings. It can take a few weeks. Older specimens, it can take quite a while. They can be out of sight for quite a while. Then they will emerge. Usually, if they're nice, they go out and drag out their old molt for you so you know they're done and ready to eat. And then you start the whole process over again, completely normal. But there are still, it's hard for folks. Again, and this falls under the overcaring. We freak out. What should I do? It's been three weeks. I can't tell you. Probably one of the most common questions I get from people is how long should my spider be buried? How long will my spider be in pre-molt and buried in its burrow? It's freaking me out. That's one of the biggest ones I get because folks want to know an exact time. It's, it's weird to think that that spider could be underground, completely closed off, and still be completely fine. So we worry and we stress. And then we go, all right, well, I've heard that spiders as slings molt rather quickly. Why has it been three weeks and my spider's not up? Well, sometimes they take longer than others. If they filled up really quickly, and this is a problem with folks, I find this a lot more with folks who are just getting into the hobby that are using a more aggressive feeding schedule. If you're feeding your spider, your sling, every other day, or in some cases, I've heard people that feed them every day, expect the sling 
looking to go into pre-molt much more quickly and have a much longer pre-molt period, meaning if they bury themselves, they're going to be under there for quite some time. But we need to try to stop panicking so much. And I know it's hard. I totally get it. I've been there, but we need to stop panicking so much when they bury themselves for what seems like too long and resist the urge to dig them up. Usually a few times a year, I get an email from somebody who is sharing it to kind of laugh at themselves. And, and I get it. And we laugh together, but sharing that, hey, my spider buried itself. I freaked out. I dug it up and all I found was a really irritated spider. And then I felt badly. We've all done it. We've all done it. So that's one of the spots where I think it's very difficult to just hang back, watch your spider. You're staring at basically a container of dirt. A lot of times you can't see the spider. It gets the anxiety up. It it gets you worried. You're worried something's going to happen. You've read that molts can go bad. You're like, what if the spider had a bad molt down there? More often than not, there's not an issue. Are those, they're the stories where people's spider goes into pre-molt and they dig it up finally months later and find out the spider had unfortunately got stuck in the molt or it passed after molt? Yes, unfortunately it does happen. I've had it once happen once to me where I was waiting, 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 finally dug it up, found the spider kind of decomposing half in the molt in the bottom, but the conditions were right. There was nothing I could have done had I dug it up. The only risk you're going to run by digging them up, especially premature is interrupting the spider in the middle of a molt, which could be deadly to the spider, especially if you collapse that thing on them. Not a good situation. Now, I said 99.9% of the time, it's perfectly fine. That 1%, there are those situations, and I've experienced it a few times myself. Doesn't happen often, but the spider basically buries itself. It goes through pre-molt. It molts and doesn't come back up. And you see that it molts. And in the instances that I've had, one of the instances I saw the spider had actually molted. Another one I was guessing, that was with my P. muticus. One of them, it was with actually my grandma stole a pulchra, had molted and gone down, dug down about four inches deep, a sling. She molted. I saw the molt and I waited 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 and several weeks went by and she was not coming up to the surface. She was not opening the burrow again. And I was putting prey up there. The prey was running around. She wasn't coming up to hunt. So what I did was carefully took a brush. I moistened down the area around where the entrance of her burrow was. I carefully took a brush and packed the soil aside to make a little opening. And then I pre-killed a roach and I dropped it right in the burrow. She jumped on it and started eating right away. So there was a situation where the spider was not surfacing. She did not detect the movement above. There's a lot of thought to the fact that in the wild, some of these species, if they burrow, will run into prey items underground so they don't even have to surface. And I have seen this again with the P. muticus. I saw it with her and I saw it with my S. Hoffmani, who actually did the same thing. She closed up her burrow. She molted. I could see her clear as day and waited and waited and waited for her to come back up. I was dropping crickets and roaches up top. Finally, I opened up the burrow a little bit. Dropped the pre-killed one. She was all over it. So normally doesn't happen. And the way to avoid it is to not overdo it when you have a burrowing species with the depth of the substrate. I know there's stuff out there that says if it's a burrowing spider, give it as much dirt as you can give it. So you get folks that'll get this tiny little half-inch P. muticus and they'll put it in six inches of dirt in a deli cup too far. Give it enough room so that it can comfortably burrow and hide itself, but not so much room that it gets lost. But again, that doesn't happen often. I haven't seen it happen all that much myself, and I have many, 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 many spiders, but it is something to keep in the back of your mind, and that's how you test. Do not tear the whole burrow up. Do not drop live prey down the burrow. Open up that little hole carefully. Again, best way to do it. Moisten it down so you can pack it away. And then unless you can see the spider, I wouldn't drop the prey item down there. In the situation where I dropped the prey item down, I could see the spider. Leave the dead prey item on the top of the burrow. The spider will sense the airflow from that hole. It will climb up to investigate. It'll find the prey item. And a lot of times, if it's again, if it's hungry and just molted, it's going to eat. And then you'll know. And then you know you can start dropping live prey items in there. And I found that they do not seal the burrow back up after that. Something clicks, they realize, oh, there's stuff up here and they leave it open. So that's the only situation where you should ever probably investigate because again, the last thing you want to do is open up. I did a rehousing years ago with a Keelabrocchi species that when I was doing the rehousing and opening up the burrow to get the spider out, I realized it had just molted. It was a bit of a nightmare. Luckily, everything turned out well, but that's the last thing you want to do is interrupt them during a molt. That could be deadly.
So the old burrowing spider still tends to cause a lot of stress for keepers. A lot of times will lead to situations where keepers will act in a way that could put the spider at risk. And we just got to remember, we got to recognize those signs. And if you were to ask me to one thing that usually leads to the overcaring for spiders, it's usually the spider not eating. That's the one that usually kicks this all off. If you notice in a lot of these scenarios, it's a spider scrunch up in a corner, not eating. As we mentioned before, if they're eating, don't worry. That's the best way to gauge whether or not the spider's okay or not. If you drop a prey item in, even if they're all scrunched up in the corner, if you drop a prey item in, the spider springs alive, grabs a prey item, starts eating boldly, sits right there. Don't worry. It'll eventually settle in. And then if your spider is not eating, some of the things to consider are, A, is it in pre-molt? A lot of times you buy a brand new spider, you're not sure how much it was fed. It could come to you already in pre-molt. You see there's a lot with folks that buy spiders from pet stores. And I've noticed a lot of people that contact me with these situations. Like, I just bought this spider at the pet store. What happens in the pet store is nobody knows a darn thing about spider care. So they usually feed the spiders daily. Sometimes you have situations where the poor spider's got like 20 crickets in with it. So a lot of times when you get a spider, it's already in pre-molt. The other issue you might get is a spider that was not correct, kept correctly at the pet store. It's stressed out because it's under a light on like a half an inch of substrate and no place to hide. You get it home. Those can take a little longer sometimes to settle in. Or you have a situation like when I bought my Afonapelma Simani, she was super stressed out. I put her in a container with some moist substrate, immediately burrowed down and made herself comfortable. So it could go either way, but that's something to always think about. Are they already in primo? Were they eating ahead of time? Are they still eating? If so, you can back off. You can rest assured that your spiders are probably fine. And as far as adding the more moisture, remember that it's harder to get moisture out of an enclosure once you put it in. If I were to pick a genera or two of spiders that are, I would say, fall victim to overcare more than any other ones, it would be Carabina and Avicularia. I get more folks that unfortunately pick these guys up. They panic. They've heard about SAD, sudden avicularia death syndrome. They've heard that people have a hard time keeping them, but they've done their research. They're ready to roll. They get the spider. They immediately forget all their research and make moves that actually put the spider at risk. So somebody emailed me a couple weeks ago. They got their avicularia versicolor. They set it up in a container that had a stick a little water dish, some mostly dry substrate, and the spider, after a week, hadn't settled in. They were afraid that it was too dry, so they moistened all the substrate. So when I got a picture of the spider, it was super moist substrate, not a lot of cross-ventilation, no place for the spider to hide, and the spider all scrunched up in the corner, and it wasn't eating. And this can be a big issue with the Vicularia because they can be a little finicky. They won't eat until they settle in. Same thing with Carabina Versicolor, and then the race is on to do different things to try different things to rehouse to pour more water in unfortunately what happens with these guys is they read from some places that they need high moisture levels they need high humidity then they read other places say don't worry about it they you don't need high humidity give them a water disc you know mist if you want once a week or so but do not overdo it with the humidity just make sure there's good ventilation they hear those two different and quite frankly contradictory styles of keeping them they're not sure which one is correct they start with the dry but as soon as the spider doesn't settle in or doesn't eat immediately they go oh I guess I was supposed to keep them moist and they start adding moisture I hear this so many times with avicularia the other thing I hear with avicularia is they set them up and either they feel like the enclosure was too big the enclosure was too small and then within a couple weeks they rehouse again this is a spider avicularia and carabina are spiders that will often not eat if they're not comfortable and settled in they're not like say your formictopus that you could sit there and probably house on crushed glass and they would still eat for you if they don't settle down if they're not able to hide behind something or web up a little area for themselves to feel secure they may not eat for you so be careful if you're getting avicularia and carabina species that you don't overdo it that you don't overcare for them i still feel like in many instances a i will freely admit these guys are obviously a bit more finicky than most of the species out there especially the ones that we call beginner species because you can't discount the abnormal number of deaths we get with carabina versicolor and avicularia species there has to be some they're not quite as resilient they're not quite as hardy or adaptable as many of the other species out there. I don't think that's disputable. I know some people come on and go, I had no problem with it. That's great. I understand you probably didn't have any problem with it. I don't discount that, but there are a lot of other people that do. So I think we do have to keep that in mind. Now, if you pair that with the fact that there's a lot of differing information out there on how to keep them, it kind of creates this perfect storm where you set it up, you think you have it right. 
something doesn't look quite right, the spider's not settling in, the spider's not eating, and then you do a 180 and start pouring water in, and in some cases, I think, probably kill the spider. So those are the ones, be extra careful. The the majority of emails I get with folks that are over caring for their spiders or freaking out over their spiders are the avicularia, the carabina, or moisture dependent species. You get a lot of people that have good environments set up for their spiders. The spider doesn't settle in the way they think it's supposed to. And then they start pouring in more water and create basically a swamp. You want to be very, very careful of that. Always make sure you have the good ventilation. That's one way to prevent that. And always kind of go through that mental checklist before you start making huge changes, before you start pouring in more water, before you start putting the heat should never happen. I know in the earlier one, we were talking about the heat. I don't know if I addressed that one, but that's the other thing I get sometimes is people freaking out over their temperatures and they start trying to heat things up. I just had somebody email me saying that they got their first spiders in the summer, but now the fall's coming. Their home is a little cooler. It's like in the lower seventies and should they heat? No, don't heat. If your temperatures are in the 60s, mid to high 60s to 70s, you're fine. Sure, they may slow down a little bit as far as the eating is concerned. They might not grow as quickly, but they should do just fine in those temperatures. Now, if they're dropping really, really low, that's a totally different ball game. We'll get into that as we get a little closer to winter. I usually do my winter episode to just kind of remind people how to go about heating and stuff. But don't fall into that trap where you read, and that's another one that can be deadly. You find some type of information online that tells you this spider has to be at 80, 85 degrees. There are a lot of people out there that will say they have to be kept at those higher temperatures. Not true. Will you get faster growth rate? Yes. Do you need to keep them that warm? No, you don't. I've done it for years and they grow just fine. So it's part of the fun of the hobby. And I have to say, this is, I think, why some of us end up with so many spiders. One of the tricks to not perseverating, to not fixating on individual spiders is to get more of them. I know that when I got my first few slings and they all tended to go into pre-molt at the same time and stop eating, my solution, instead of just staring at those tubs of dirt and willing them to grow, was to get more so I could feed those. And then what happened is the new ones that I got would eat. They went into pre-molt, but by the time they went into the pre-molt, the other ones come out of pre-molt so I could start feeding them. That's, I think, one of the reasons why so many of us end up with large collections because they are so easy to keep. To bring it back to the beginning of this, like a couple folks had mentioned, that's one of the best parts of this hobby is these spiders are like set it and forget it type easy to keep. But what happens is that gets in our head. We worry. We think about the other animals we've kept over the years and we start trying to make things more difficult than they actually are. So when you have a lot of them to take care of, to clean, to feed, to rehouse, it allows you to spread that out a little bit, spread that fixation out a little bit amongst a lot of different spiders and you've always got something going on so you don't perseverate on things that really aren't an issue in the first place. That's what can get us into trouble. So hopefully I pointed out some of this was a tough one to go through because it's kind of situational where there's other instances of folks I think are over caring from them but a lot of the most popular things that I've seen are the the moisture level situation the rehousings happen all I can't tell you how many folks contact me with the whole I've already rehoused it two times I don't get what's wrong and a lot of times by that point, I didn't see what it was in to begin with, so it's hard for me to judge where the issue was. I think a lot of times we have to have a little more confidence in our setups, a little more confidence in the fact that we did things correctly, and we have to have a little more patience in terms of letting things run their course. And that can be tough because, again, we've talked about they're not very expressive, and sometimes when we start seeing something wrong with them, our immediate reaction is to jump and try to fix it. We don't want to have a situation where all of a sudden you come in one day, the spider's dead, and it's like, oh my god, I just noticed three weeks ago it was doing this, and I did not about it. I get it. I really do. But I do find that more often than not, when we hyperfixate on them, when we hyperfixate on their care, when we agonize over the little things that we see, we can end up making moves or changes that can do more harm than good. So that'll do it for this one. I am currently working on a piece of theory video that I started over the summer and bit I don't want to say bit off more than I can chew, but it was one of those ones that as I started putting more and more pieces together, it got to be a bigger and bigger deal. I was hoping to have it finished this weekend, but it's just not in the cards, unfortunately. So we'll have to see if I got something else that I could. That was all I was hoping to put up this weekend was that video. I've been excited about it, but I didn't get the narration done. So that'll it'll probably be next week. I'm going to continue working on it. But it was one of those situations where I found that I was starting to rush, and that doesn't make any sense. This is going to be, I mean, I'm excited about the video because I love Peace of Etheria. It's been a while since I've kind of put the spotlight on them. So I want to make sure I don't cut any corners on it. So we'll see. If I might just put up a short later on just to kind of remind people I'm still here. I did have a couple cool feeding shorts I might put up. So nothing to really report on the YouTube end. 
As always, you can find me on YouTube, of course. You can find me on TomsBigSpiders.com. You can find me on Tom's Big Spiders, the podcast, which is where you want to go to comment on this one. Let me know, and, and that's another thing that'll be really important because these are some of the things I've run into. What are the situations you've run into where you've kind of overcared for your spiders? We've overfixated on them, where you've done things because you're reading too much into it that could actually put your spiders at risk. What have you guys experienced as far as that's concerned? I shared a couple of mine. I'd love to hear some of yours. That'll do it for this one, guys. As always, stay safe, and we'll catch you all next time time.